Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. lovely listeners and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series and I'm your host Maddie Govo, events manager. If you have never heard of Skylight Books before and you have somehow stumbled upon this podcast, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Um, We are an independent general interest bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now we are open every day for curbside pickup and in-store shopping with a mask from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, We're going to be expanding our hours very soon. Um, We may have already expanded them by the time this episode airs. So just check our social media for the latest on our operating hours. Um, We did just open our arts annex back up, which is so exciting. That's where we keep all of our beautiful photography, monographs, our comics, our uh, film and TV books, our design books, um, and all of our weirdest and best scenes. Um, So if you've been missing all of that great uh, content, Hop on over. We're open. We'd love to see you. Um, All right. So today we're going to be talking about feminism. Don't freak out, guys. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation. I think this is uh, such a fun and also meaty book um, that's going to give you kind of both the um, accessible sort of uh, introduction to some of these concepts in feminist philosophy and also get us deeper into the weeds and kind of the nitty gritty of of these conversations that are happening among theorists right now. Um, So my guests today are Carol Hay, who's the author of Think Like a Feminist, The Philosophy Behind the Revolution. And she's gonna be in conversation with Samia Hesney. Uh, I will read both of their bios in just a second, but to tell you a little bit more about the book, Think Like a Feminist is an audacious and accessible guide to feminist philosophy, its origins, its key ideas, and its newest directions. It's irreverent yet rigorous, and it unpacks 200 years of feminist ideas. There's a lot in here, um, and I'm excited to, yeah, do that, do some of that unpacking on the podcast here today. All right, so our guests. Carol Hay is an associate professor of philosophy at University of Massachusetts Lowell and author of the award-winning Kantianism, Liberalism, and Feminism, Resisting Oppression. She's written for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and Eon Magazine. She divides her time between Boston and San Francisco. Samia Hesney is an assistant professor of philosophy and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Boston University. Their current research is about normative discourse and social negotiation, examining the ways in which speakers use language to enforce, reinforce, and modify power dynamics within linguistic interactions. Fantastic. Carol and Samia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks for having me. 
Um, <laughs> all right, so Carol, do you want to start us off with a short reading? Give us a little taste of the book. I can do that, yeah. So I think what I'm actually going to do is read you the epilogue. Um, so, you know, just pretend you've read the whole book and this is the last thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you. Okay, so um, before I start, actually, there's one, um, one bit of information that I have to give you so that um, something I say is going to make sense. So um, in this reading, I talk about a birdcage. I have this sort of metaphor of breaking free from a birdcage. And that's actually an allusion to something that I talk about um, earlier in the book, which is a metaphor under, for understanding oppression, which is a sort of central theoretical term that feminists use. Um, and this metaphor comes from a feminist philosopher named Marilyn Fry. And um, Fry says that when we're thinking about oppression, a nice way to sort of understand what's going on is to think of a bird that is surrounded by wires. Right, and not just one wire, not, I mean, they're not electrical, electrified wires or like razor wire, just regular wires, right? And any individual wire by itself isn't really capable of affecting what's possible for a bird. But as we know, collectively, when all the wires are attached and they're systematically related in the right ways, um, a bird cage can completely constrain a bird. So Fry says that this is a nice metaphor for understanding oppression, right? So we should sort of think of um, all of these in interrelated harms and injustices that women experience because they're socially recognized as women. Um, and collectively, all of these things combine to really affect what's possible for women. So that's the background you need to understand this. And with that, I will read to you the epilogue of Think Like a Feminist. Okay. So the epilogue is called Why Not Humanism? Something you often hear from the I'm not a feminist but types is that instead of feminists, we should, we should call ourselves humanists. Feminism, in their view, is a label that's too far gone, too weighted down with the intimation that the collective goal here is the establishment of a matriarchy, right, where women smear menstrual blood all over their bodies and howl at the moon to honor the Wiccan mother goddess and only bother keeping men around to work as sex slaves and maybe do some manual labor. Even if the entirety of human history has been characterized by men having the upper hand, two wrongs don't make a right, they scold. Humanism, on the other hand, implies equality. And who doesn't like equality? To which I say, bullshit. The reason we will need feminism instead of humanism for the foreseeable future is that the latter risks ignoring thousands of years of history, risks pretending that we've already achieved gender equality when we, when we obviously have not. If and when feminism is actually successful in achieving gender equality, it won't need to exist anymore. Yup, you heard me right. Feminism's goal is to eradicate the need for its own existence. Maybe another way to put it is that feminism's goal is humanism. But to insist on humanism now is to pretend that we live in a radically different world than we actually do. Objectification, misogyny, the male gaze, Gender essentialism, rape culture, and sexist oppression have a long and storied history. The process of dismantling them will be equally epic and enduring. The patriarchy will not be overthrown in my lifetime, or my daughter's, or her daughter's. The catcalls and pussy grabbing and mansplaining and sexual violence will continue. But we can and we will make progress. And my hope is that having read Think Like a Feminist, you'll have a better handle on the reality of the situation. My hope is that you'll be able to grasp and make sense of the double binds you experience, the false expectations you have to confront, the wires of the birdcage you're surrounded by. My hope is that you'll never again have to feel like you're entirely alone and trying to shake free. So that's the epilogue. Thanks, Carol. I loved this book so much. And 
in sort of hopes of reaching more people who may not have read it yet or know what it's like to think like a feminist. I'm just going to start with a really basic question, which is what is a feminist and how do you define feminism? Sure. Yeah, that's a good place to start, right? Um, because one of the things I actually talk about at length in the book is how feminism has this PR problem, and maybe we can talk about that later on, right? But I think that you know, this is a concept that there are a lot of misconceptions in the public consciousness about what exactly is going on here. So it is good to sort of start out with the definition. Um, I like to joke that if you were to ask 10 different feminists to define feminism, you'll get 11 different answers. Um, and so, and, and but what I mean by that is just that this is a really, really complex um, social movement with a lot of um, sort of contradictions and disagreements within within the movement. And so coming up with a definition that everyone is going to buy, uh, sort of buy onto um, can be tricky. So with all of those caveats in mind, here's my sort of like baseline for thinking about what, uh, what, what feminism is. Um, and again, the thought is that what the, what, what the problems are, what the solutions are, these aren't necessarily things that feminists are, agree, are, are going to agree about, but the, I think there are sort of a few fundamental things, right? And so they do this. First of all, you are a feminist if you, um, if you agree with the social scientists, right? If you, if you agree with the historians, right? This is actually not a job for a philosopher at this point. You're a feminist because these people point out that basically by every single metric that we have to measure quality of life, um, women don't do as well as men. Right, so whether we're talking about like subjective reports of happiness or um, health or wealth or um, political representation or autonomy, control over one's day-to-day -day life, whether you're talking about just seeing yourself reflected positively in the culture at large, whatever it is, um, women don't do as well as men, both historically and today. So you're a feminist if you agree with those facts, right? Those are just descriptive empirical facts, right? They're not up for grabs really, unless you want to just not agree with science, right? So you're a feminist if you agree with the scientists about those empirical facts. Um, and then there's a second uh, claim, which is that this is a bad thing that can and should be changed, right? So this is where philosophers can sort of start to talk, start talking because, um, right, you, you might think that is, yeah, it's true that women don't do as well as men, but that's just because they're sort of inherently inferior creatures and that's why they don't do as well. Um, but if you, if, if you don't think that, if you think, no, there's something else has to explain the fact that um, women aren't doing as well and we can change this and we should want to change this, um, then you're probably a feminist. And the third plank I'd like to build into this definition is to point out that um, there are sort of certain, method, certain methods that we, can, that we have for tackling this problem that actually feminism hasn't historically been very good about that um, most contemporary feminists now are sort of getting on board with. And the thought here is that we can't, that, that, these, that the oppressions that women experience because they're women are inseparable from the injustices and the harms of other kinds of oppression, right? So whether it's um, racism or classism or homophobia or transphobia or ableism or a whole, a whole host of other sort of um, oppressions, but is that you can't tackle the, uh, the problems of sexism without simultaneously trying to tackle these other problems. Because if you do, what you end up doing is sort of entrenching um, these other harms, right? So a kind of concrete example of that, um, one that I discussed in the book, comes from a classic second wave feminist named Betty Friedan, who many people have heard of, right? So she wrote this groundbreaking book, The Feminine Mystique. Actually, amusingly enough, she had the same um, publishers as I did. So she, her, The Feminine Mystique was also published by Norton. And um, she, um, so she, she famously uh, wrote about the problem that has no name, that's what she called it. And, and the problem that has no name is this, um, basically this ennui and boredom that uh, rich, uh, 
usually white American housewives were experiencing in the, in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, right? So the thought is that was, this was a sort of you know, wealthy time in America and um, these women were, were, were being told that like, they, they should be happy being housewives, they should be fulfilled doing this, you know, with their new technology like washers and dryers and these sorts of things. Um, and of course, many of them were actually quite miserable and quite bored and quite um, unfulfilled by this by this life. And so Friedan wrote this book called The Problem That Has No Name, or called The Feminine Mystique, where she talks about this problem that has no name. And she's sort of giving these women a voice and a, a, a sort of tool to talk about the, the shared experience that they were having. This is all very fine and good, right? But she really, really did make it sound as if this was the worst thing that could happen to a woman, right? That she could be a bored leisure class housewife who was you know, sort of underappreciated by her husband and not you know, using her fancy liberal arts degree for anything interesting, right? Um, and of course we know that the world is a lot worse for a lot of other women, including the underpaid women of color that these white women were often hiring to do the domestic work that they found unfulfilling, right? Um, so again, so if we look at the history of the feminist movement, we see a lot of mistakes like this, or a lot of um, a lot of instances of relatively privileged women using their social privilege to have their voices heard, but then pretending as if their problems were the only ones or the most important, or these sorts of things, right? So, I think that, that feminists today recognize this, you know, this sort of history of mistakes, and they um, they're, they they try to do better, right? They try to recognize that you can't tackle sexism without also simultaneously tackling racism and classism and homophobia and these sorts of things. And so um, the term or a label that got, that's often put on this is intersectionality. And as I talk in the book, intersectionality is an incredibly complex idea with a lot of stuff going on. But that's one of the things that people often have in mind when they talk about intersectionality, right? Which is again, just, just this recognition that sexism doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? That exists in the social world with a lot of other interrelated oppressions. And if we're gonna fix it, we've got to tackle the whole thing all at once. Fantastic. I love the idea of tackling everything. Altogether, uh, one of the things you mentioned in terms of oppression, women experience being inseparable from other kinds of harms and oppression is transphobia. And the first point that you brought up in terms of the definition of feminism was that women don't do as well as men on the whole. So I'm wondering, do feminists have to buy into the gender binary, right? That there are just women and men? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think that the extent to which um, Feminists have to, or when feminists talk about um, gender and talk about in binary terms, what they're what they're generally doing is responding to the social world as it as it is right now, right? So it, we we live in a world where human bodies are sorted according to sex, right, either male or female sex, um, and we live in a social world where sex is then hooked up to gender in a one to one sort of correlation, right? So the thought is that if you are born into a body that is assigned female at birth, then you tend to be gendered in feminine ways. Um, such if you're born into a, a male assigned body, you're usually gendered in masculine ways. And um, the trans experience is what is what shows us that these things can and probably should come apart, right? And that this is just a, it's, it's, it's a oversimplified way of understanding a biological and a social reality that's just vastly more complex. And so again, this is one of the the bits of progress that we've really seen from feminists probably in the last, I would say, 20 years at most, sort of theoretically, um, where feminists really are sort of starting to understand um, the experiences of trans people. And that's actually teaching us something about the experiences of everyone, right? So the thought is that um, trans people show us that, um, and, and, the, and people who theorize about trans experiences, they show us that, um, you know, who, who we are, who, 
how, how we identify these are these are far more complex than um, than we might usually think of them if we're just sort of following sort of conventional social scripts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so our right, so there's this class of people who call themselves feminists, but also call themselves, uh, but are also trans exclusionary, right? Trans exclusionary, quote unquote, radical feminists. Are they feminists? Um, so in part, I think. I don't know if it's useful to necessarily get too grouchy about boundary policing here, right? If they want to call themselves, so, so the, uh, often the, the preferred term is gender critical feminists. And um, gender critical feminists are a particular brand of radical feminists who think that um, trans women are not women, right? So they exclude trans women from womanhood. And probably the most famous turf these days is JK Rowling, right? Who is, um, you know, spilling a lot of ink and using a lot of her public profile for um, for purposes that are, from my point of view, really pretty regressive and pr pretty horrifying, right? So she's um, she's of the view that um, trans women are not women, right? That they are, you know, men dressed as women, and that they are. She, she she's you know, throwing fuel on what people sometimes call the bathroom wars, right? Which is the idea that cis women, right, women who are assigned female at birth and identify as women, that cis women are somehow endangered by letting trans women use public bathrooms, for example, or that they're justified in not feeling safe if a trans woman is using a public bathroom. Um, but of course, these the, 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 the crimes or the harms that TERFs point to in the bathroom wars actually don't exist, right? There, there are almost no instances of um, people who are assigned male at birth um, using the space in a public bathroom to assault a cis woman, right? Um, and so it's, so it's a sort of made up crime and it's made up harm, but they're using the specter of this to really um, double down on certain um, understandings of what it means to be a woman that are really problematic. But I mean, and they're problematic from the point of view of actually harming trans women, right? Because trans women actually experience as much, if not more, sexual violence um, and gendered violence than cis women do. Um, and so as feminists, we should be concerned about that, but instead TERFs actually say that, you know, the, that whatever harms be, befallen these people aren't, aren't harms that feminists should be concerned about. And that if we include trans women's experiences as women's experiences, we risk um, sort of selling out the feminist movement. And so um, one of the ways I like to sort of um, point out the flaw in this sort of thinking is that um, again, first to point to the harms that trans women actually do experience. And also then just to point in the book as I do to, um, how feminist thinking has really evolved on the issue of understanding what it means to be a trans person, right? And um, when you when you actually sort of look at that history of, of thinking, you realize that um, no feminist like the, the feminist thought has really moved beyond the idea of thinking of just gender as a social construction, right? The idea that we, how we sort of uh, how how, we're, how we identify how we're socialized these in, in gendered categories these are socially constructed. So that was something that feminists in the sort of seventies were really pretty good about. But by the 80s and certainly by the 90s, feminists following in the wake of, of people like Judith Butler really started realizing that, no, just as much as uh, gender is a social construction, we can think of sex as a social construction. And what we mean by that, according to Butler, is just to sort of realize that um, when we look at um, uh, a, bo a human body, what we, wh which characteristics or features of that body that we pick out as sort of socially relevant, um, that itself is a political decision, right? That's a, that's a decision that has, that, that carries with it certain sort of uh, power structures that, that in, in Butler's word, right? So that, is, that we look at bodies and say, okay, so whether this thing, this infant 
um, has something that we think looks like a penis, that, that's really, really social, socially relevant. And again, we could see that in things like those, you know, those goofy uh, gender reveal parties where people keep burning stuff down with their, with their silly fireworks, right? Um, and of course we see it when, when we sort of, when we're interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis, right? We see that um, whether, which, what genitalia someone is presumed to have is supposed to be really, really socially relevant, right? And we can compare that to things like shoe size or eye color. And like, it's just true, these are, these are ob objective facts about a person's body, but, but they're not objective facts that have a lot of social meaning, right? And so what Butler has us start to do is to sort of think about, well, why do we care so much about someone's genital configuration? And why is that supposed to carry so much social meaning, right? And ultimately the answer is gonna be that, um, and also, and what, sorry, and more, one more thing to add. If we add into the, into the realizations that we've had from uh, from biologists, which is that it's actually an oversimplification to think of the human body as um, coming in only two sexes, both either male or female, right? So the, the idea that sex is bi binary that's an oversimplification of, of 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 our biological reality. Again, human beings. Um, don't come in just two sexes. There are intersex people. There's a wide variety of intersex uh, sex conditions, um, and um, both. The, so there, there's just variation in human chromosomes. There's variation in human um, hormones. These sorts of things, and all of this sort of like adds up to the realization that uh, the world is just a lot more complex than pink and blue. And once you see that, then you can start to sort of realize that um, how we're sorting human beings serves particular purposes and those purposes aren't usually feminist ones. They're usually purposes that combine, like why, what, like wires in a birdcage to systematically keep people who are identified as women oppressed. Yeah, what I'm hearing here, uh, a theme in your answer to this question and the previous one is that it seems like feminists are just good at listening to science. Um, <laughs> it's nice. The beginning of your answer to my question also reminded me of this passage in the oppression chapter of your book, where you talk about the basement analogy for intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw gives us, where um, there's, a, there's a hatch door at the top of the basement, but feminism historically, instead of focusing on helping uh, the women who need help the most, anti-oppressive movements have concentrated on getting people who are closest to the exit hatch out. Do you think feminism has gotten better at this over the years? It sounds like you've been, you're optimistic about this and you've given us some, some reasons to be optimistic. Uh, do you think there's, do you think we're gonna keep going in a positive direction? I hope so, yeah. I mean, I do think this, is, this has been a sort of like two steps forward, one step back sort of kind of progress, right? So I think, um, Right, it started when feminists, when white feminists realized that they really actually started needed to listen to black feminists, feminists of color, and not just pretend that the experiences of privileged white women were the experiences of all women, right? Um, and so I think that we think, again, and so even the, con the concept of intersectionality itself, right, came to us from a black feminist, Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw. And um, yeah, I, I, I do see feminists making progress. And I think actually one of the, um, one of the frustrations I experience is, um, realizing that there are people who want to write feminism off as this sort of like dated movement that was maybe relevant in the 70s or 80s but you know we've moved you know, we've moved beyond that now and we, and we sort of we should we should think about the social world in, in different ways and I, I just I don't think we're done with feminism yet I think again again the, the, the stats don't bear it out right people who are identified as women still don't do as well 
And so given that, I think that we still need these theoretical um, structures. That said, I think it's, and it's important and it's something I spent a lot of time on in the book is really being honest about the mistakes that feminists have made in the past, because unless we're really, really just brutally honest about it, we're gonna keep making them. And what that often looks like is a sort of admonition that um, someone who's a feminist really needs to constantly check for privilege. I know that's kind of a cliched phrase, but it's true, right? You, you, one really needs to think about the ways that her experiences of the world aren't necessarily representative. Um, and the thought is that ultimately what we should be concerned about is helping all women, not just women like me, or not just relatively privileged women. Um, I don't know, someone gave me an example um, a couple of weeks ago of apparently in the in the time of chattel slavery in the, in the American South, there were some women who um, were able to use, some white women um, who were able to use their access to slave labor to um, start businesses and do things that otherwise they wouldn't have been, otherwise wouldn't have been socially acceptable, right? So they were sort of use their white, their, their, their black slave women to, um, you know, sort of participate in the economy in ways that were uh, sort of revolutionary or progressive um, at, at, at the time. And so, so, so the, the question I was given was, well, isn't this feminist, right? That these white women were able to sort of act like act in ways that only men were usually allowed to. And so was, isn't, isn't this a sort of feminist victory? And I wanna say, no, that doesn't, like that's not what feminism is, right? So if your view of feminism is just, how do we help individual women succeed in a man's world? Then maybe that, was, that would count as feminism. And that's certainly been a definition of feminism for many people through, uh, throughout the history of the movement. But again, where we're making progress now is I think we're, is, is we're realizing that Something only counts as feminist if it actually helps all women, not just relatively privileged women. And so, so if you have this sort of different framework, you can see, you know, that like it's not, it's not feminist if you're using black women and enslaving them and enforcing them to do things against their will. That's not that's not feminist, right? And so I think that when we realize that if we if we claim to be concerned about justice, right, which as feminists we do, justice should care should have us care first and foremost at. People, about people at the margins of society, people who are the least privileged, not, um, and those aren't going to be the, be the people with the social power to make their their their, their concerns known, right? They're not going to be the people with the social position to, to have their their concerns be listened to, and so as feminists, especially as privileged feminists, right? Someone like me, right? I'm white, I'm educated, I'm middle class, right? Uh, I'm cis, right? I, I really need to be careful that when I'm making these claims about what women need and what and what's 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 bad for women, what's good for women. I'm not just talking about women like me. In fact, I probably shouldn't be uh, centering uh, women like me. I should, be, I should be centering the experiences of women who have it a lot worse off than me, right? So that's one of the reasons why I talk so much about trans women in the book, why I talk about women of color in the book, right? Because again, this is a, this is a historical mistake that feminists are really good at making. And it's, it's, a, so it's almost like a cognitive habit, right? It's hard to not do this, right? To not sort of generalize from your own experiences. Um, and so, it's okay to start there, but that just that has to be a starting point, and you really do need to move on to sort of focus on on the women who need, or rather, the women who have it the worst off in in our society because of the forces of sexism. Yeah, again, I, I really like the point about checking your privilege as a first step. It seems like very clear, very actionable. What what sorts of things do you think uh, happen when privileged women check their privilege? I think. Um, so it's um, it's funny. I was trying to think about slogans for the different waves of feminism, um, and so the, the the stuff we've been talking right now, um, people categorize this as third wave feminism, and maybe we can talk about the first two waves in, um, later. But third wave feminism really is this is this sort of historical corrective to the mistakes that feminists have made in the past. Um, and the slogan I came up with for um, third wave feminism is "Sit down, Karen." Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
it's quick. It's, it's, you know, it's, you should be able to remember it, right? But again, the thought here is that we really do need, white women especially, right, privileged women need to just listen, need to stop you know, swooping in thinking we've got all the answers and we really just do need to listen. I think it's, um, and again, this is one of those situations where in some ways I'm optimistic, right? What happens when we sit down and listen? Well, then we have Tarana Burke, right? A woman of color who gives us the Me Too movement, right? That's what happens when we sit down and listen, right? Um, of course, then, then the movement itself has now been taken over by many, many, many people will uh, claim that the movement has been taken over by white women. And again, women of color's concerns are being brushed to the margins. But again, that's just, that's that two steps forward, one step back sort of thing, right? So again, so if we just, if we, if we actually just listen with an open mind, to um, to women who we know don't have it as well as off as we do, um, we both stand to make the world better for all women. But we also just stand to learn a ton about the world as it is, right? So one of the points that intersectional feminists make is that um, the people who are at the margins of, the, of, of a society are, in many ways, best positioned to know the most about what's wrong with that society, right? What's unjust about that society. Right? in part because they have no reason to lie to themselves about the status quo being any better than it actually is, right? There, um, there, 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 there's, there's no reason for bad faith there because they know that they're being screwed over by society, right? So that actually puts them in a position epistemically, as Walters would say, to actually be able to figure out what the problems are and to point towards solutions because they're, they're, they're very clear-eyed about what's wrong with the world, right? Whereas a woman like me, right, again, who's like, I, I for example, I don't have a lot of reason to get real critical about class structures in, in society because I'm doing pretty well, right? As a professor, I have a salary, right? I'm not worried about like paying my, paying my rent next month, these sorts of things, right? Um, and so that, so that might make me sort of less inclined to be as critical as I probably should be about how class systematically um, oppresses large swaths of the population, right? Things like that. Yeah, that's really helpful. And you mentioned uh, talking more about the first two waves of feminism. I'd love to hear more about that. I, I was there was so much interesting stuff happening right now. I feel like we're working backwards, but why not? Why Just not? Both Let's do it. Um, yeah. So again, so these um, feminist historians generally sort of carve up the movement into three waves. Um, and I should start, start this with a caveat because. Everyone sort of agrees that there's this that this wave metaphor is useful for, for sort of understanding the history of the feminist movement, but everyone also recognizes that, it, that it's got problems, right? So one problem with the wave metaphor is that it can lead you to think that as one wave crests and finishes and the next one starts, then all of the goals of the first wave have been achieved. And as we'll see, that's not true, right? And again, it also sort of, it tends to sort of focus on the experiences of some women at the expense of others, these sorts of things. It tends to pretend that, you know, that we've solved things completely and we haven't, but let me give you some concrete, um, let me, let me get right edit that, sorry, okay. <laughs> All right, um, so the first wave, the first wave of feminism is generally regarded as starting around sort of late, century, late 17th century, early 18th century. And basically what we saw is that we saw um, uh, th uh, thinkers, people like Mary Wollstonecraft and then John Stuart Mill, uh, Harriet Taylor Mill, people like that, taking these enlightenment ideals, right? The idea that um, everyone is, you know, all, all men are created equal, right? What's written in the US constitution, right? The idea that all human beings are equal, right? That we shouldn't have a, a sort of social hierarchies like a monarchy or, you know, feudalism. And instead we should have this, you know, this sort of democratic, democratic equality where everyone is an, is an equal citizen. And so those ideals were basically sort of um, taken and given a feminist spin by these early feminist thinkers who pointed out that women have the same thing that men have that makes them 
appropriately thought of as equal citizens, right? The thought is, I mean, it's our rationality, it's our ability to sort of set and pursue our own ends, to, you know, to pursue our own life projects, right? And women have just as much of this rational capacity as men do, and therefore women should be able to participate as full and equal citizens. Um, the slogan for this is basically, um, let's get the legal stuff sorted out, right? Because that's what these, what these first wave feminists really wanted to do. They wanted to pass laws that would allow women to vote, right? So we saw suffrage, right? They, they wanted to pass laws that would let women own property, right? So these sort of like the, the kinds of things you can write laws about. These, these were, the, these were the, the successes of these early feminists, right? Because now women can own property, right? Women can, um, can vote, these sorts of things. That's why all women right now are going to be voting, right? <laughs> I think when this, this podcast airs, it'll be still in voting season. So please, everyone vote. Um, and so this, this is a, a victory that we thought that we can thank first wave feminists for. And so the first wave kind of chugged along, um, at least in the Western world for, the, for a couple of hundred years until the, around the mid 1900s, around 19, 1950, it was actually 1949 that Simone de Beauvoir published The Second Sex. And Beauvoir is an existentialist philosopher, um, well-known in her day. And she actually used existentialist philosophy to argue that um, women were being held back by certain forces of socialization, right? So at this point, you know, women, women could vote, women could own property, and they had been for at least a generation or two. And yet Beauvoir and other feminists saw that women still weren't doing as well as men. And so the thought is if it wasn't just all of these legal things that were holding all the women back, there must be something else that, that explained why women still, still weren't doing as well as men. So Beauvoir started this trend of looking at these social factors, looking at the forces of socialization, um, looking at all the stuff that you can't pass, like you can't legislate how you know individual people treat each other, right, when it comes to gendering each other or having these expectations of what people are going to be like or what people should want to do. You can't write laws about this stuff, but these expect but these gendered expectations can have a huge effect on um, how someone's life is going to go. So that's really a, a something that, that second wave feminists spent a lot of time um, looking at. And that happened all the way through the, from the 50s, all the way probably to the 1980s, I would say the mid 1980s. And that's when we first started um, getting some of the, some, some articulations that would then later turn into third wave feminism, and that again, that, that uh, to, we, we have women of color to thank for that, right? Women of color, um, not straight women, right? Lesbian women who um, who argued that again, as, as we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that these um, uh, that when we're criticizing these forces of socialization, we need to look at all women's experiences, not just privileged women's experiences. Um, and so the, the, those are the three waves. I don't know. Um, sometimes people talk about fourth and fifth waves. I have to be frank. I'm not really sure what they're talking about. I think that at this point, like these these definitions of what count what comes after uh, fourth wave, whether in post feminism, uh, like I, I'm not on board with that. I think I, I I think that the wave metaphor works after the three waves. I think I think that there's pretty uh, basic consensus that, uh, that this, this is how we should understand the history. I think after that, it gets it's, it, it gets a lot messier, and I'm not willing to grant that it's. We, we, that we're in a fourth wave or a fifth wave or these sorts of things. I think, um, again, the battles of all three waves are still being fought in various uh, places around the world. But also I think, in, I think we are probably just really still firmly in the third wave in, term, in terms of understanding theoretically um, where feminism is going. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm thinking about something you said about the second wave and de Beauvoir focusing a lot on these social features. Um, do you think that's where, or do you or do feminists think that that's part of the origins of sexism in the first place? Like, is it social? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it, it's kind of fun to speculate where sexism, um, where sexism came from, right? Because I mean, it def it predates written history, right? So that we, we are, we're definitely in the realm of speculation here. We can't know for certainty because 
right? That sexism is, as far as we know, there have been no matriarchal or egalitarian societies, societies or at least not very many of them. Um, and so if every society has been patriarchal in the sense of giving most of the social power to men, um, that sort of cries out for explanation, right? Like, why is this the case, right? And different feminists have had have come up with different explanations, but again, these are all just speculative, right? So um, John Stuart Mill, right, in early um, um, 18th century feminist talks about um, basically might makes right, right? So the thought here is that, well, you know, the, if the average man is, is bigger and stronger than the average woman, then he can use that um, sort of physical power to force his will onto women, right? And so basically the thought is that men just forced women to obey because they could, because they were stronger than men. Um, and that's like, like that, that's a possible ex explanation, but again, it doesn't explain why that that is the way it is now, given that we live in a, in a social world where physical strength actually doesn't get you very high up the social ladder at all, right? So um, like, I'm pretty sure I could arm wrestle Donald Trump, right? And he still has a lot, of, a lot more social power than I do, right? So, um, so it can't, it can't just be physical power, it's gotta be something else, right? So um, Kate Millett is another um, philosopher from, or rather feminist theorist from I think the 70s and 80s. Um, and Millett speculates that maybe where this came from was actually just men and women's different roles in childbearing and child rearing, right? So we should point to the fact that it's women's job to historically, until very recently, women were the ones who had to carry the babies in their body and then feed them with their bodies afterwards. And this just put them in a, in a situation in society where they weren't, where they didn't have the time or the energy to, do other things in the world. And so that, that, that sort of put them at this, at this systematic disadvantage. Again, now that we have um, infant formula, women are no longer bound by this biologically. And um, a, a lot of the, um, the advantages of modern medicine mean that pregnancy is no longer the danger or the burden that it once was, right? So again, so you would think that these things would be going away by now. Um, again, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's, it's hard to know exactly where this stuff comes from, right? Some sort of less feminist friendly explanations of this sometimes come from evolutionary psychologists, right? Who take some pretty kind of regressive ideas about what men and women are really like. They really just kind of take these like these stereotypes of what, about what gender are. And they kind of like write them back into the speculation about what we were like in our caveman days, right? And so the thought here is that you know men just want to spread their seed and like you know, like have as many children with as many fertile women as possible, and that's why they're attracted to a certain kind of woman. And women really just want to sort of like you know catch a man and lock a man down because they you know they they're the ones who are responsible for taking care of them. And so this this explanation might sound quite similar to explanations that we get from feminists like Mill or Millet. But often when we uh, utter the mouth of evolutionary psychologists, it tends to actually sort of end up justifying a really pretty regressive status quo where this is how things should be, right? Women really should be um, subject to men. And so that's why I think a lot of feminists are kind of critical of evolutionary psychology's explanations of, of gender differences and, uh, and the, the imbalances of power between men and women, just because um, too, many gender, uh, too many evolutionary psychologists want to pretend that this is how things should be. And that's not something as, as feminists that um, we want to get on board with. Yeah, you also talk in the book about uh, the ways in which religion reinforces sexism, and uh, I thought that was super fascinating. Uh, it made me wonder what what do you do when when there is such an authority behind these sexist ideas, and you're trying to reach people who, on the one hand, see these things as authorities, but also uh, are sort of struggling to recognize themselves in these positions of powerlessness? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And it's, it, there, I don't think there, 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 there isn't just one answer because I think like this, this kind of problem can take a lot of different forms. 
Um, I mean, what you don't want to do is something that I think feminists have done in the past. Uh, Western feminists have kind of swooped into other countries and say, all right, so the problem here is that you're, that you're, you're just the poor victims of um, a, a sexist culture. And so we're going to save you by trying to convince you to convert to a different religion, right? So there's often kind of like an, anti, an anti-Islam bent to some of these criticisms, right? And sort of thinking about these women in these cultures, right, as sort of... Um, as being these sort of dupes of patriarchy or sort of completely oppressed by their burqa or these sorts of things. Um, and again, when we, when we know that, like it's, it's absurd to pretend that Western women aren't oppressed in, in many of, of, of the same ways, right? And so again, I, it's, it's in some ways, it's easier to point to what not to do, which is to sort of like swoop in and think that the answer is to just have everyone live the way women in the US live or something like that, right? Um, but when it comes to actually sort of getting people to see the problems in their own lives. I think, again, like I think people are pretty good at recognizing what's fair and what's not, right? When, when they're given the chance, when they're given the chance to really sort of reflect on what's open to them, when they're given, given the opportunity to see other ways of life. And um, I think when you do that, you, I, I think women can figure out for themselves when, when they're oppressed. And it's not the job of feminists to kind of come in and start finger wagging, right? Um, it's much more the job of feminists to point out all of these unfairnesses and give individual women the chance to decide for themselves what they want to do about it. Yeah, good. The the finger wagging feminist reminds me a bit of the stereotypes that you talk about in your book of feminism that you try to dismantle. Uh, can you tell us more about those? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so the reason I um, I actually spent like an early chapter, the entire chapter is called the F word, right? And I just straight up admit I opened the book. I'm like, yep, listen, I get it. Feminism has a PR problem, and I think this is in part like a little bit the fault of feminists and a lot and a lot the fault of society. I think the reason feminism has a has a PR problem is because if we can cast feminists in certain ways, then we don't have to take them seriously. And if we don't have to take them seriously, then we don't have to consider the possibility that they that they might be right, that the world really might be really unjust towards women, and that maybe we should we should probably change it. Right. Um, so I um, identify these two main stereotypes that I think often pop into people's heads. Like the first thing that you think of when you think of feminist, and I, I, in many cases, I think it's one of two things. And both of these stereotypes are kind of caricatures that are like rooted in reality. But they're kind of like, but, but they're, they're they're twisted in certain ways, and again, they're twisted in a way that makes it such that we don't actually have to take feminism seriously. We don't have to um, manage manage to defang feminism of its radical potential in very different ways. So the two stereotypes: the first one is the angry feminist, and the angry feminist, right? She's just you know she's the, you know she's grouchy and she has like bad hair and she wears Birkenstocks and unflattering clothing and she's definitely not feminine and she's very very bitchy and she's opinionated and she's. Um, I mean, to be clear, these are like most of my favorite people that this describes them, but right. But it's also like, this is a stereotype that um, that pops into a lot of people's heads or that, that she's just really, really angry. She just can't take a joke, right? She probably just needs to get laid by a man, of course, right? Um, and the reason I think that many people think of the angry feminist when, um, when they think about feminism is because um, we don't like anger in women. Right, anger is this emotion that, despite the fact that we like to sort of characterize women as these irrational, emotional creatures, um, the one emotion that they're not allowed to have is anger. Right? And so, Bell Hooks, um, a, a black feminist, actually points out, right, that this 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 works also for for black people and people of color, right? That we characterize these people as emotional, but the one emotion that they're not socially allowed to have is anger, because anger is the one emotion that might actually get shit done. Right, anger is the, the one emotion that can really kind of motivate social change, and so of course we don't like we don't allow anger in, in these groups of people. Right, when a cis white man is angry, well, he's just righteous, right? He's just well, he's really determined, and like he really must know what's going on, right? Whereas when a woman is, uh, when a white woman, or um, especially a woman of color, or even a person of color, right, is um, 
is angry, right? We, we, we use that as, as, as all the evidence we need to write them off, or we don't have to take them seriously because they're angry or they're not being rational and cool-headed, right? Even though like the very same behavior in a white man would, would be perceived as being rational and cool-headed, right? Um, and so yes, feminist is, um, is a stereotype that we often have precisely because we don't have to take the, the if, if we just, if we can write them off as just angry bitches, that we don't have to take take seriously the, the the thought that maybe their their anger is justified. Maybe they actually have something to be angry about, and maybe we should be listening to to what the sources of those, that anger actually is. Right. So I talk a lot more about in um, about this in the book again about how um, uh, these rejections of of angry feminists sort of look differently for different um, for, for men and women. Like men and women respond differently to the angry feminists, but it's both a sort of it's a negative reaction. Um, and then I talk about um, the second stereotype of feminists, which is the girl power feminist, right? And so the girl power feminist is someone, even, and I think even people who might identify as feminists might often think of feminism as the girl power feminism. And um, right, girl power feminism looks like leaning in at work, right? It looks like, you know, like, I mean, back, at, like, I don't know, back in, when I was in, 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 when I was a kid, it was the Spice Girls, right? Um, and, <laughs> right, and now, right, like, like Sometimes, like you get, like a, a couple of years ago, right, Beyonce sort of came out as a feminist, right? And she's like wearing, like she's wearing, standing in front of this big screen, emblazoned with the word feminist, not wearing pants, right? And like to be clear, like Beyonce is incredibly feminist in all sorts of ways. That was maybe not her most like d distinctively feminist moment, just because like it, it really, the girl, it, it gives us this version of feminism, which is just, it's like like girls just want to have fun, right? Whatever, like whatever kind of feminist you are, you're not one of those scary, angry feminists, right? You're the you're the you're the fun, sexy kind of feminist, right? Um. And, and again, the girl power feminist is, you know, she's used to sell body wash, right? She's used to, you know, like uh, to motivate corporate women's leadership events, right? These sorts of things. And again, the girl power feminist isn't actually going to change the world in any way. And that's why she gets cultural uptake, right? So remember when there was that statue that went on Wall Street at the beginning of the, move, of the Me Too movement, right? Where they, they put this little girl um, right in, in right in front of the statue of the bull on Wall Street, and right, she's sort of standing on her hips, all defiant, and like, and everyone thought, yeah, this is fabulous, right? This is this great feminist monument, right? We have this little girl who's standing up for the bull on Wall Street, but of course, it's no coincidence that that was a little girl and not a grown woman, right? So she was called Fearless Girl. Okay, so Fearless Girl, we like to tell girls that they should, they should be fearless, right? By the time you're a woman, if you're if you're if you're if you're serving up that kind of attitude, you're going to have a whole hell of a lot, a lot of pushback, right? Because um, we actually don't like it when women act in those ways, those, those, those sort of feisty ways, precisely because, because a grown woman might actually do something with that fearlessness. A, a, a little girl isn't actually a threat to the status quo, so we're happy to sort of like feed that narrative, but we're not actually happy to let grown women actually have that kind of social power. Right? So this is, this is a manifestation of girl power feminism that, 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 that I push back against in the book. Yeah, it sounds like there's a really similar double bind going on for feminists that mirrors the double bind that women face where you have to, right, you can't be too angry and you also can't be too appeasing of the status quo. Um, is, it, is it up to feminists to sort of check themselves so that they don't fall into either of these categories? Or do you think it's more like there's a societal misconception of feminism that pushes people into one or the other? I think that's probably the latter, right? I think characterizing the double, double bind is right, right? It's because the thing is, no matter what you do, it's going to be too much or not enough for somebody, right? So I think that um, it's it's useful to sort of be aware of these stereotypes, and it, if only because it's worth sort of realizing that this is probably going to be the uptake, no matter what you do, right? You're you're likely going to be put into one of these two boxes, and so at least being aware of them means maybe you can navigate this stuff. Um, but I think 
as, as often as not exactly you, you actually can navigate these things in the sense of not being taken as one or the other right but at least i'm hoping that at least if we can kind of label it we can sort of get people to realize okay what feminism actually is isn't either of these stereotypes feminism itself is much more complex and um much more worth being taken seriously yeah you've it's like you've done the work for us to point these things out and recognize them as distractions so that now we can move on and actually just talk about feminism which is part of what's so great about the book and i will tell you another thing i really love about this book uh so there's a quote in the chapter on oppression where you talk about maria lugones and embracing the way she tells us to embrace our own transgressiveness as a condemnation of an overly constrained and unimaginative status quo and then i'm still quoting from the book uh you're not the problem here the world is so that really resonated with me because I see in so many of my students and people I care about uh, that it's like been really drilled into them, right? People who are not uh, white, cis, heterosexual men, um, that they are, it's been drilled into them that they are a problem, right? And it's really hard to get out of that mindset and realize uh, that, that the world is. So just to go back to Fry's metaphor of the birdcage that you read at the beginning of the podcast, it's almost as though what's going on is that uh, you're in this birdcage and you're also being told like it's your fault that you're in the birdcage. Um, so do you have do you have experience other than doing things like writing this book and uh, giving your talks and teaching the classes in helping people realize that they aren't in fact the problem, right? And that it's the world and forces that are conspiring to keep them where they are. So I think, I mean, obviously, like it comes all, comes up a lot in the classroom. Absolutely, I think you're right. Like as teachers, we, we spend a lot of time giving people the tools to start to understand that the world is set up not for people like them. So of course, the experience of the world is not set up for them because it's not set up by or for people like them, right? And so, yeah. So I think that was definitely one of my motivations for writing this book was to give people ammunition, right? To sort of make make people realize that, um, um yeah, that that. The, the feeling of homelessness, the feeling of like um, imposter syndrome, right? The feeling of not fitting in um, can actually be a source of strength if you let it be, right? If you realize that like, okay, I'm not living up to these standards, but do I myself actually endorse these standards? Do I, um, do I value these standards? And if the answer is no, then, then someone actually has room to start thinking about, well, what kind of world do I actually want to live in? What kind of people do I want to be around? What kind of person do, do, do I want to be myself, right? And again, I think that um, this is something that actually there are other, this is an area that actually makes me really very optimistic. I think that we are getting a lot better. And I think um, that's to say like the kids are all right, right? They, they, like I think we're, we're really sort of seeing a lot of progress in people's recognition that there's a wide variety of ways to live. Um, I think we've made a huge amount of um, progress when it comes to trans issues, for example, um, issues of sexuality. It's just, it's, it's a lot easier to not be straight now than it was even when I was growing up, right? It's a lot easier to not, or to, to be trans now. Than it was when I was growing up, which is not to say it's easy to be um, queer or it's easy to be trans, trans not by a long shot, right? But it's a lot easier, right? There's just a lot more cultural recognition of these as valid ways of life. And I think that we're going to be all the better for it, sort of socially and individually. I think that um, there's a lot to learn. And again, this is, goes back to something I was saying earlier in the podcast that um, if we actually just listen to people that we that, that, that are generally on the margins of society, we actually, um, there's a lot we can learn about different ways of living. 
right? And I think that the queer community has been a huge source of inspiration for this. I think the trans community is a huge source of inspiration for this, right? Um, that there's just, there's just a, we, we don't have to live our lives in these tiny little boxes that, are, that, that have been set, set up for us by society. And if we don't, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking it sounded like there was also an opening for things like solidarity and coalition. So. Absolutely. Um, it's funny, I, um, I've been getting a lot of pushback in this book um, from TERFs and from people who are really sort of critical of my take on, on, on trans people. Um, many times they're in the UK, no one can quite figure out why there are so many TERFs in the UK, but there, but there are many in, the, in, the, in America as well. And um, it's, um, it's been interesting to sort of um, hear, the, hear the feedback from people like that and to sort of realize that this actually is an important direction to push feminism in. So um, I'm, I'm happy to have, have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think I speak for a lot of people who, when I say we're super grateful that you did this and are doing this. I'm super grateful to have the chance. Thank you guys so much. What a great conversation. I, I feel like I learned a lot and it's also kind of energized me. Um, I think, you know, Right now, so many of us are feeling like we're being governed from the top. You know, the, the elites are projecting their own things onto all of the rest of us. And one of the really powerful things about this form of feminism you're, you're talking about and outlining is that we can flip that script. We can reverse it. And we should. Um, and it's long past time to do that. So thank you so much for speaking so clearly on it. And, and um uh, Samia, thank you so much for your great questions. This was just a pleasure to listen to. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, and yeah, I, I really hope people read the book. Yes, you're here. Um, do either of you have anything else you want to say? Any projects you would like to promote before we say our goodbyes? No, I think I think I'm just both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you both for taking the time to speak with us today on the Skylight Books podcast. Um, again, and to our listeners, thank you all so much for listening. Our guests were Carol Hay, author of Think Like a Feminist, and Samia Hesney. Um, I hope you both have a great day. And uh, listeners, stay frosty, stay reading. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.